I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. In the beginning, the end. It's a story, but that's why I'm here, to tell you stories. So where to start? When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood, like a house in a whirlwind or, or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids, and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all, when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good luck. We care about your world. My guest is Sharon Blackie. She's an award-winning writer and internationally recognized teacher whose work sits at the interface of psychology, mythology, and ecology and focuses on the development of the mythic imagination and on the relevance of myth, fairy tales, and folk traditions to the personal, social, and environmental problems we face today. She's also the author of five books of fiction and nonfiction, including the eco-feminist bestseller, If Women Rose Rooted, and her new book that we'll be talking about is Hagitude, Reimagining the Second Half of Life. Sharon, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. So first off, I just want to say how much I love this book and actually related to it so much. Thank you. It's really been interesting. I've had a couple of men who have interviewed me who've said precisely that, and it does surprise me rather. But I guess that whole idea of the journey through elderhood, although it's very specific for women because of the physical changes during menopause, is nevertheless something that we all go through, I think. Yeah, exactly. Like men don't go through the physical things of menopause, but we go through something very menopause-like in our emotional and psychological transitioning through a certain phase of our life. 
Indeed, and menopause is, is clearly a combination of the two. You know, the psychological changes are very much enhanced, if that's the right word for it, by all of the physical changes and that great conflagration that happens to us at that time of life. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's actually a very interesting phase, and it tends to bring up so many things, not only internally, but in our external world as well, to create the right conditions for that kind of you could say, the alchemical reactions in the crucible of our lives. Yeah, I think really, if you look at the culture, both on this side of the Atlantic and on yours, there is a tendency to write us off after a particular age. I think that's particularly true probably for women, because we are judged very much on youth and fertility and cultural ideas of beauty. But of course, it's also true for men. And the idea seems to be that we should become invisible and we should just kind of go away and leave it to the young ones. And I think that's a great pity because, you know, for most of us now in most developed countries, we have decades of life left to us if we're fortunate after that time of life, which menopause happens. And as Jung said, we must do this for some reason. Those years of life must be there for something. And for me, it was very much a Writing the book was very much a way of trying to introduce this second half of life as a whole new journey, a whole new adventure. And I would even add that this second half of life is often the richest and the most delicious part of life because we're not as plagued by the kind of youthful insanity that, that tends to undermine our own internal sense of well-being. I think that's true. We have, by this time of life, most of us become pretty clear, not everybody, but become pretty clear about who we think we are. And we're less subject to the whims and fancies of the culture. And I think that adds a stability for many of us that is really quite valuable, not just to us as individuals, but also to the culture if we allow it to happen. Yes. And even if we haven't quite figured out who we are or what we most want to do in life, we have figured out at least so many of the false things that we don't want to be and that don't work for us in life. Right. And I think that menopause is particularly, or this second half of life is very much about having all of that apparatus, which has been holding us up for the first more active part of our lives, kind of stripped away so that we see what is actually left. You know, if we really evaluate the relationships, the way we present ourselves in the world, all of the things that we do and wonder why on earth we do them anymore, then it can become a great opportunity for getting really back to basics, to the essence of who we are and thinking, okay, what am I really here for? Mm -hmm. And you said that you had a, a kind of a rage that descended upon you after menopause, a kind of raging fire in your body that is very uncomfortable. But you said that that was also the beginning of the realization of other things arising in you or the revealing of other things in you. So I would love for you to talk about how you came to write this book and also more about your experience of this intersection of menopause and elderhood and also yeah. introduce what you mean by the term hagitude. Yeah. So first of all, why I wrote the book? Well, I wrote my book, If Women Rose Rooted, 
during the years between 2014 and 2016. So I would have been, you know, kind of 55, mid 50s at the time. And it was very much about my own particular version of a heroine's journey, not a hero's journey, but a heroine's journey, which I see very much as a, a way of bringing women closer to the natural world, closer to the earth, closer to a sense of belonging and responsibility for the planet. And at the end of that book, I said, well, elderhood, I think, is an entirely new heroine's journey, you know, that begins at the point of menopause. But I didn't really have a huge amount of experience of that at the time. And I always had it in the back of my mind that as I got older, this would be the book to write next. And indeed, that's what happened. So I'm 61 now, and I was writing it around, you know, 59, 60 years old to focus on that journey in the second half of life, which I see very much as a kind of inner journey, not that we're not interested in the world around us, but it is an inner journey, as opposed to the first half of our life, which is very much an outer journey about building stuff, whether it's a career or a family or whatever. In the second half of life, we turn inwards. And I think we are kind of designed to do that, both men and women. It's just something that seems to happen to everybody at this time of life. So hagitude is a word that came to me literally in the middle of the night. It's all the best ideas do. So I woke up and I sat up in bed and I said, hagitude to the bedroom, as you do. And the bedroom didn't answer back, but I woke up the next morning and thought, that's a really good title for a book. And the reason for this is that the word hag in European myth and folklore seems to represent a particular group of women. And unlike the word crone, which over here at least is very much the kind of older side of old age, you know, the very frail kind of wizened old, old woman, the word hag encompasses the years from midlife to that old age. Now, the women in our oldest myths and folklore who are termed hags have a power of their own which springs from their absolute authenticity, from being absolutely firmly who they are, sufficient to themselves. They don't define themselves in relationship to others or what the culture, the system would like them to be. And I think that they are vilified and hag has become a negative term precisely because of that, because they live according to their own truth rather than going along with what the system, the patriarchy, if I may, tells them they ought to be. So I think that reclaiming that word that has been used against us and reframing it in terms of this absolute authenticity, which I think can come to all of us in midlife and afterwards, can only really be a good thing. Yes. A major theme in my life has been the revealing of the rules of the game, so to speak, the way it tends to be played in our society and recognizing that these rules, these these definitions and dynamics of this game have all been made up and realizing we can create a whole new way of, of playing in this world. And we don't have to buy into any of those old rules since it's all made up. Yeah. I mean, I, the way that I look at it very much is in the context of myth. And so really, myth is myth is meaning. Okay. So myths are about the way the world is and our place in the world. That's kind of a, one definition, at least, of a myth. And I think so often people fail to recognize that 
the culture hands down myths to us today. You know, they're not something that our ancestors two, three thousand years ago did, myths. So the stories that we are told by the culture we must live by and the way we must be in the world are exactly that. They're stories. And you don't, you're quite right, you don't have to choose this story if it doesn't work for you and if it doesn't create some kind of joy and meaning in your life. And so I'm always trying to persuade people to look at that cultural mythology, you know, the way we are told we must be, and perhaps replace that cultural mythology with something that is a little bit more meaningful. And that's why so much of my work focuses on myth and story and on archetypes. It's to try to find a way of reimagining better stories to live by. And I have come to love fairy tales and folk tales and stories like that for just those reasons. And this is a big part of the work that you've been doing much of your life. So I would love throughout this conversation for you to bring in stories to help elucidate some of the things that you write about in the book and some of these ideas and these notions. And returning to the rage that that you experienced mm -hmm. and the fire, that is often viewed as being very negative and unproductive in our culture, but it also serves this very important role of helping us to burn away some of the illusions that really get in the way of our truly moving into the second half of our life and going through that all-important second kind of individuation of our life. Sure. And menopause for women has this sense of burning, this, this sense of fire, both physically because of the hot flushes, but also psychologically in the sense of the anger and the rage that seems to overtake almost all, not all, but almost all of the women that I speak to about this. And I don't know whether it's just because, you know, menopause breaks down so many barriers because of the significant physical changes that are happening. And I think it just breaks down the barrier that tells us we have to hold it all in. And I think by the time most women reach menopause age, we have put up with a lot of stuff. And there is a sense that it's just like, no, I'm just not going to put up with that anymore. And it comes out in the form of rage. Women culturally in the West even are not allowed to express rage. It's seen as ugly. It's seen as negative. It's not seen as having any function. But if we go back, for example, to ancient Greece and we look at three wonderful old women called the Furies, we see that rage was accepted as the province of older women. And the Furies had a really important function. So that if somebody had transgressed against the most serious rules of their society, for example, if they had killed or if they had disrespected a parent, which is a terrible sin in ancient Greece, then the Furies would come after them and they would rage at them. But they didn't do it just for the sake of it. They did it with a view of encouraging the people to own what they had done and then to atone for it. So the Furies would set them tasks, you know, where they could atone for what they had done. And so the Furies, the kind of personification of rage, was seen as essential. They were a kind of moderating or balancing force in the world, just as the three fates 
who also old women were. And these furies, these older women, these are highly respected. They act as like what we would consider in our current society as judges, like a high tribunal. Yes, and that is very much the function of older women in European mythology, not just in Greek mythology, but throughout Europe. And we see it again, you know, as I mentioned just a moment ago, the fates, who were also old women. Now, in artwork, they were always painted as beautiful young women, because that's what the painters like to do. But in the texts, they were old women, and they literally wove the world into being. And, you know, it's often thought that the fates kind of, you know, created destinies for individuals. And that's not really what they did. They also held the world in balance so that if somebody took something that they shouldn't, or if somebody took more than was allotted to them, then the fates would have to step in to restore the balance of the world. Because, you know, a major sin like that would put the whole world out of balance. And they were the ones who understood how to retain balance in the world. So we see these wonderful roles for older women, which are sometimes raging, sometimes very calm and balancing, but always, always necessary. And I just love that notion of weaving the world into being. And one of the things that's so foreign to our present culture is the notion of the, uh, the quote-unquote other world in contrast to our quote-unquote real world. And the weaving seems to take elements of both worlds into that weaving process. Yeah, that's a lovely way of putting it. So certainly in the Celtic tradition, the Irish and Scottish, Welsh, Breton, Cornish traditions on the Western fringes of Europe, the other world was not a place you know, it wasn't a place that you went to. It wasn't separate from this world. It certainly wasn't some heavenly kind of place in the sky. The other world was absolutely entangled with this world. It couldn't be separated from it. And so you can kind of think of it in a sense of like looking through a veil. You know, one day the veil parts and you see through it from the physical world into the other world that is overlapping with this one. So all of the women and to a lesser extent, the men of deities of Celtic mythology had clearly, you know, their roots in the other world, but they were also absolutely part of this world as well. And women particularly were imminent in the land. You know, they they represented the land. They kind of personified the land. But the other world was the source of moral and spiritual authority for this world. And it seems in various more traditional cultures, that women have often, other than the male shaman, traditional male shamans, have been more connected or more in touch with that other world somehow. Perhaps it's through the womb that they carry, which to me is synonymous with the uh, infinite creative void from which all of life emerges. So women tend to have an embodied sense of that, whereas men don't really have that. They have to do it on a kind of more spiritual level. Yeah. And again, if we look at Celtic mythology and, you know, running the risk of being a bit essentialist here, you find that kings, men tend to be the kings. The kings are associated with society and culture, and the women are associated with the other world and the land. And obviously, the, the mythology is very, very clear that you need a balance between the two, you need a relationship between the two. 
But that is very much the case that, that the women are the ones who are coming out of the other world to, for example, say who would be the best king, you know, who is the one that can best keep that relationship going between the physical world and the other world. And there's the sense that women have this understanding of balance, of what it is to live in balance with the natural world, for example. And perhaps that is, you're right, perhaps that is a, a function of of the ability to bring new life quite literally into the world. And a big part of this journey into elderhood seems to relate to our ability to enter into the mysterious, the the world of uncertainty and even chaos that exists within that realm of the infinite creative void. Could you talk about that in relation to this journey? Yeah, so I present in Hagitude, I present menopause specifically, but it would be true, I think, for any pause at midlife. I see it very much as a, I present it as a time between stories, because that old story of the first half of life, you know, the building, growing, pushing through story is coming to an end, and our bodies know it. And it's not that I'm saying that our bodies are getting ready to die, but our bodies know that we've done that now for a good, good few decades. And it's time to just take a pause, kind of like a reset. And then, of course, the new story of elderhood is being refashioned, is, is being grown during that transition period, during that time between stories. And I think it's really very important to give ourselves the space for that new story to be born. But again, you know, the culture doesn't like us to do that because we're not supposed to stop in the trajectory of our lives. We're supposed to go on building, go on growing, go on earning, and so on. And so I think a lot of, it's not just that the culture doesn't usually permit us time to do it unless we're very, very fortunate, but I think we have come to see it as slightly transgressive, you know, if we if we stop, if we haven't already got a plan for the next part of life. And yet there is this wonderful sense of, in the time between stories in this transition period, of a very fertile, dark, creative time where a seed is growing, you know, and seeds need to grow in the dark while nothing very much is happening around them. And so I do see this time as very, very fertile, but we have to allow ourselves to hold that uncertainty about the new story that is going to emerge. We have to kind of trust that one will and not try to manage it and control it like we so often have a tendency to do. And this is a process that men go through as well. There's an inner gestation process that happens within men as well in much the same way as it occurs, you know, the, the feminine creative power that, that, you know, is manifests in our world as bearing children in the second half of our life, in a sense, we are bearing a new iteration of ourselves. We are, in a sense, rebirthing or recreating ourselves anew. Yeah. And, and you know, there are so many wonderful elder man stories as well in European mythology. And it does strike me that that somebody out there needs to write that book. <laughs> That's not one for me because I'm not a man. I can't see the journey in the same way that I can see a woman's journey. But there are so many interesting ways of being an elder man, just as I uncovered so many different ways of being an elder woman in European 
myth and folklore. And it's, you know, they give us these stories, these archetypes help us to reimagine ourselves. They give us a little bit of hope, you know, that there is some way to be that is really valuable and potentially really very rich. So I'm thinking of what, you know, one of the classic characters of Celtic folklore would be Merlin, who was once back in the day called Mervyn out of the, the old uh, Britonic tradition. And he was more than just the kind of, you know, starry clad magician that you see in the Disney movies. He was a bit of a wild man and he uh, he got his wisdom from the woods and from the wild things in the woods. And that sense of taking time out from the world, which he did, to go into the woods, to listen to the wild, and to come back with a wisdom which is very often prophetic and certainly otherworldly, is a really interesting role model for, I think, for elder men. And not every elder man will appreciate that. There'll be other elder man role models that that different men will relate to. But but they're, they're really interesting characters if you start to delve quite deeply. Yes. And we have that within us. We we can find ways of accessing that. So I would love for you to talk more about this notion of mythic imagination and diving into the deeper layers of our own psyche to connect with the ways that we're actually entangled with the collective psyche of the cosmos itself. Yeah. So for me, the mythic imagination, I guess, is a way of looking at the world a way of approaching the world. So we tend, as everybody knows, but I'll say it anyway, we tend in our current culture to be supremely rationalistic and intellectual, focused on objective, what we think of as objective forms of knowledge. And really, we've had the kind of sense of magic and mystery that we have when we're children, normally kind of beaten out of us by the time we grow up as adults. So what I'm interested in is having people acknowledge, yes, that the physical world around us is very, very important, but there is another layer of experience on top of it. So what do I mean by that? For example, if I go outside where I live, I will always see a crow. You know, there's a crow everywhere. We do crows over here in a big way. And I will talk to the crow. Now, I know everything pretty much about a crow. I'm a great crow fan. I love corvids. I know where they nest. I know their behavior. I know what they like to eat. And so I understand the physical crow and I can go out there and I can talk to it and I can look at it and I can be very pleased with myself because I, I know that bird, you know, in this physical intellectual knowledge-based sense. But if I look at it with the eye through the lens of the mythic imagination, I'll also remember that in my mythology, crow is many, many things. Crow is often a trickster bird that comes to disrupt something that must be disrupted for the good of the world or the person or whatever it might be. And crow is because of that, really, the wisdom of crow. That is something that female deities, goddesses in our old mythology tend to shapeshift into, that crow form. So when I look at a crow, I see through the physical lens that it's a very beautiful blackbird with particular you know, behaviours and fitting into a particular ecological niche. But I also look at it through a mythic lens, and that helps me approach crow in a deeper kind of way, because I'm beginning to see crow's stories. But I'm not even stopping there. I'm looking at crow and I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, what am I in a crow's mythology? 
What does it see when it looks at me? And what do I want it to see? What do I want it to be in Crow's story? And that's kind of an interesting question that brings us into relationship and reciprocity. Yeah, I was just reflecting on how the world is full of elements like that. Yeah, absolutely. Wherever we look, there is a layer of story, whether it's the stories of our ancestors and the ancient culture, the myths and fairy tales, or whether it's the stories that we create by virtue of being in the land and you know, working with talking to being in relationship with the other than humans that inhabit it along with us. So I definitely find my own stories. You know, I have trees on my land that I talk to that represent kind of a, a mythical archetypal figure. And that didn't come out of an old story. That came out of me just looking at them, being with them, and seeing them, perceiving them in a particular way. And I think that this really deepens our connection with the world. Yeah, I totally agree. And I've been fascinated by the way certain cultures actually focus a lot of intention on the way they integrate their experience in this world with a kind of mythic, imaginal approach to this world through another inner level of their being. And we don't learn that in this culture. So even those of us who read about this and in our own way try to access that, we're swimming against the current. I guess. I mean, I'm seeing a lot of changes, you know, over the years. I'm seeing very much more interest, certainly in this part of the world, in myth. When I wrote If Women Rose Rooted, which had myth as quite a big part of it, it was really out there, you know, that was really weird to do that. And because of that, it didn't get a whole lot of mainstream media attention. It sold entirely by word of mouth. But now, what, six years on, after a handful of other books that have done a similar kind of thing, looking at myth and and psychology and, and what it means to us, all of a sudden it's become all the rage. And I think people are shifting and people are thinking, you know, they're looking at the world around them and just seeing a lack. They're seeing a lack of meaning. And stories can help us find ourselves again, find ourselves in the context of the wider world. And that creates meaning. So I'm hoping that it is changing. I think it is changing. It's just kind of a, a race to the end since we're facing some existential crises in relation to the way that we relate to the land. Yeah, I think you're quite right. But the stories, the old stories, again, of this part of the world are pretty much all focused on the land. So even the kind of swashbuckling heroic stories like, you know, Finn McCool and Cúchulainn out of the Irish tradition, who are great heroes, great warrior heroes, they're still doing their heroic stuff in service to the land. You know, it always has that context. And so many of the stories are about teaching us how to live in balance with the land. So there's a wonderful Irish story about a cow called the Glass Gavlin, which basically means the cow of plenty. And this is a cow that would give milk to anybody who was in need, anybody who was hungry or thirsty. They were allowed to bring a bucket and milk the cow into the bucket, take the bucket away. This went on very, very nicely until somebody came along with a sieve and several buckets and milked the cow through the sieve into bucket after bucket until the cow finally figured out what was going on and then turned 
and kicked the buckets over, ran off into the sky, and was never seen again. So the great cow of plenty disappeared from the land. And that is a very clear story, which is very entertaining when it's told properly and in full, but which is telling us that we must not take too much. You know, we, we only need to take enough. So these stories are very, very rich in reminding us why it matters. And the consequences of taking too much or of not respecting the land can be quite severe in these old stories. You know, I love good consequence and they include floods. They include wastelands, you know, stuff that actually matters. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to talk about some of the archetypal faces of the hag, or you also use the term medial woman. Yeah, the medial woman is really a, a kind of menopausal type of character, I think. And that is a phrase that was coined by Tony Wolfe, who was Jung's student and also Jung's lover. And she said that there were four key archetypes of womanhood in her mind. The mother, obvious. The hetaira, which is a kind of muse figure. The Amazon, which is a kind of warrior figure who, you know, very manlike in, in their approach. And the fourth one, the medial woman. Now, the medial woman is the only one of those four who does not define herself by her relationship to somebody else. So the mother is defined by her relationship to the child, the muse by the person she's inspiring, the Amazon in relation normally to the men that they're held up against. The medial woman is not. And she is someone who is looking for the mystery. She is someone who is looking for the other world, I guess. And so we see the kind of archetypes of medial women tend to be things like the witch. You know, the witch is a medial woman, not in the old negative ways of looking at a witch, the wicked witch in the woods, but more modern concepts of the witch is very much tied in with the natural world and the powers of nature. The alchemist is a medial woman who is looking to transform in a very deep and spiritual kind of way. And so these are some of the archetypes of midlife, of menopause, that I think help us to see what is going on and to kind of orient ourselves around it. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the loathly lady and kissing the hag, which I think is such a, such a wonderful challenge for us in this culture. Yeah, there are two types of loathly ladies. One in stories that are, are normally referred to as kissing the hag stories is generally what happens is a prince or a fine man gets very thirsty and he wants some water from a well and he goes to the well, but the well is guarded by an old woman. Uh, very, very ugly. I mean, really just, you know, the, some of the descriptions are, are really very, very vivid indeed. And she says that she will only give him a drink of water from her well if he will kiss her. And, you know, the worst heroes don't kiss the hag, but the fine hero kisses the hag. And as he does so, she turns into a beautiful young woman who represents the land, the sovereign, what's called the sovereignty of the country. And the land, these women who represent the land, have two faces. You know, they are the beautiful young women, but they're also the apparently very ugly older women. And somehow or other, the hero has to be able to accept that, has to come to terms with that in order to get what he wants, which is ostensibly a drink of water from the well. But clearly, you know, if we look at it as a metaphor, it is as a symbol, is, is something much more profound than that. And then there are all of these other wonderful, loathly lady characters, very, very ugly again, boar tusks, eyebrows hanging down to their chins, all kinds of contraptions around them. And they are associated 
people with carrying messages of morality often. And so we see them, for example, in the Grail stories, the stories about the Holy Grail. And there's usually a knight, a young knight called Percival, who is trying to attain the Grail and failing in all kinds of different ways. And out of the woods comes riding this amazing character, this loathly lady called Kundry, and basically lays into him and tells him all of the ways in which he's getting it completely wrong, how he thinks he is so fine, but actually he's completely hopeless and he really needs to get a grip and try again. And by following the advice of the loathly lady, Percival, or whichever knight it is, manages to transform himself into someone who is more compassionate, for example, and finally attains the grail. So the loathly lady is, it's interesting that these grail messengers, you know, the women who kind of are the voices of the grail and the women who bear the grail are just as often sent out there in an ugly old hag form as they are in a beautiful young woman form. And I think, again, we're looking here at questions of balance and seeing beneath the surface of simple physical attributes. And I think that's such a wonderful metaphor for the journey, particularly for young men who who are focused on the charm of youth and beauty, and particularly their own sense of, let's say, infallibility and perfection or, you know, the root of narcissism and how we all need to find a way to transition through that. And I love the way in this story that you just referred to how country acts as a catalyst to kind of, well, I won't say force, but it inspires Percival to make that transition, which which is a very difficult transition, particularly in our culture, because we don't have any kind of signposts or mapping for that type of a journey. Yes, and what she ultimately creates in Percival is a knight who no longer judges himself by whether he has fought and beaten his human opponent, but who is judged and judges himself by his compassion. And so Percival attains the grail, eventually not by fighting and killing another knight, not by cutting the head off a dragon, but by asking the compassionate question of the wounded fisher king that he meets, what ails thee? That's what gets Percival the grail. And that's what Kundry is trying to bring out in him. And we often have these old women in the stories as testers, as kind of initiators of the young. We see this in the character of the Slavic, wonderful, my favorite Slavic character, Baba Yaga. You know, Baba Yaga is the classic dangerous old woman in the woods. And in one of the most famous stories about her, a young girl called Vasilisa comes to her looking for fire. She's been sent to the old woman's cottage, very frightening place in the woods, a house on chicken legs surrounded by a fence made of skulls and bones. And she's sent to get fire for them because their fire has gone out. And Baba Yaga puts her to work and says, well, you know, if you want fire, you better start working for it. And if she fails to succeed in the tasks that Baba Yaga has set for her, again, there are really serious consequences. You get put in Baba Yaga's man-sized oven and you get eaten. <laughs> so this is a life or death thing. It's not just playing around the edges. And that's what I love about these powerful older women, that they really 
they really are serious. You know, they really are serious. And what they're asking you to do is grow and transform in a really, really serious way. Yeah, I, I just love these traditional mythic tales and the way they can open up so many new doorways, new perspectives of how to relate to ourselves in relation to the world around us. In addition to the old hag, the ugly hag, and these dangerous hags like Baba Yaga, there's also the fairy godmother archetype. And you write about the relevance of the Sleeping Beauty fairy tale for us and, and the significance it holds for us in relation to the world. And, and something that I either didn't remember or didn't know, the significance of the seventh fairy godmother in the story and how it can help us see the predicament we're in in a new light. Yeah, that's what I love about fairy stories. They really, you know, everybody at the beginning of these stories is in a seemingly impossible situation. And by the end of it, there's been a way through. And it's never just as a, a result of what the individual has done. It's always in collaboration with somebody else. But the fairy godmother story uh, that occurs in Sleeping Beauty is a very interesting one. Because if, if your listeners remember, the Sleeping Beauty in the cradle is the infant who is cursed by an old fairy because she has not been invited to the christening. So five fairies come along and they wish great things for the little princess. The sixth fairy is the one who has not been invited or has been forgotten about. So she comes along and she puts a curse on the little princess. But there's one fairy left, the seventh fairy. And the seventh fairy is the one who, well, she can't take the curse away. She can't make it unbe. She can't make it disappear, vanish. But she can change it. She can transform the curse. And so she shifts it so that instead of the princess pricking her finger on a spindle and dying, she will instead sleep for a hundred years. And that gives, you know, a hundred years for something to happen that can really transform the story. And sure enough, along comes the prince. And I always see the seventh fairy as a really, really interesting motif because, again, she doesn't come along and do the obvious thing of undoing it. She doesn't have that in her power. She can't make the world go back to the way it was before. But what she can do is look at what is happening and see a possibility for hope and a possibility for hopeful transformation. And that, to me, is the power of the seventh fairy and particularly the power of, of the fairy godmother. And these, of course, are representations of aspects of ourself, of parts of ourselves. And it's interesting how the sixth fairy who has felt smited is sort of like the way things are manifesting in the world because of the way we have disrespected and treated the world as this object that we can just consume much like the way the cow that you mentioned earlier was taken advantage of. Yeah. And and again, as I said earlier, all of these stories are trying to show us in some sense that we must find a way to live in balance and harmony with the natural world and with the other world that envelops it. And yes, I, I do see that seventh fairy story as a, a kind of metaphor for the way that we 
have managed to um, not quite destroy, but almost destroy, certainly destroy vast swathes of our planet because of taking too much, because of the cultural myth that tells us we must always have more, 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 the myth of progress. And I do like to think of older women, I guess because I am an older woman, it's not, not to say that men can't do it as well, but older women as, as the seventh fairies that can perhaps find a way through. We can't undo what we've done, but we can we can find a way through. We can ameliorate the situation so that it becomes transformed and so that we look at possibilities rather than just, you know, inevitabilities. And also as gloomy and as horrific as the unfolding of all of this can seem, especially when you're in the middle of it, this is actually a representation of our journey through life on an individual level that we all go through. You mean that looking back at the world and, and how we can transform our relationship with it? Well, that as well, but also the whole process of how we we transgress against the world and then get another opportunity to see things in a new light and in a, in a sense, redeem ourselves and not lift the curse, but work our way through it, earn our way through it, which my sense that, that that's what the journey of elderhood is, is really earning your way through it. You know, traversing through the fire or the dark night of the soul or whatever metaphor works best for each individual. Yeah. Yeah. Again, that's a, that's a lovely way of putting it. I think for me, as a psychologist, by original training, life is all about transformation. That's what it's for. It's about changing and growing and making some terrible mistakes. And then, as you say, learning from them and shifting so that you are able nevertheless, to carry on and ultimately to find your calling, you know, that great gift that I believe that each one of us brings to the world. And again, our culture tends to appreciate stasis more than change. And as someone who has made many changes in her life, you know, both of, of job and of places where I live, I've often had people look at me as though to say, well, that's really strange. You know, can't you just stand still? And I, I really don't think that's what life is for. I believe that we are supposed to be transforming, not for the sake of it, but for the sake of growth. And yes, what propels us through that journey, whatever trajectory it might take for each of us, I think is a belief in transformation and a belief in a belief in growth. Yes. And Let's jump to the old bone mother and the Shilana gigs and how life emerges from death and in this continuous unbroken cycle of life and death, creation and destruction. And in a sense, taking us into, you know, the language that we've been talking in, kind of deconstructing the first half of our lives and then remembering who we most truly are and and bringing that into the second half of our life or bringing that into fruition as kind of the revealing of our calling in life, so to speak. Yeah. The 
inevitable end of our journey through the second half of life is death. And just as it's been taboo really in our culture to talk about things like menopause up until very recently when it's shifting a little bit and where it's really been just like tasteless to talk about being old because nobody really wants to think about it, death is another subject that we find very, very difficult to approach in our culture. And I think a lot of it is tied up with a lack of meaning, but also with this great sense of individuality that is also tied into the culture, you know, the myth of the hero, the myth of the individual, the myth of progress, the myth of more, and the idea that that, that might come to an end at some point or that that might be transformed into something else is something that we don't deal with very well. But our ancestors dealt with it extremely well, perhaps because it was around them all the time. They simply didn't live as long as we did. And so it was really from the very beginning a much more imminent proposition. And so we find interesting characters in the old stories that are quite comfortable with death. And tied in with the notion of death is absolutely the notion of rebirth. There are no linear stories in our old mythology. They're always cyclical or spiraling. You know, it is seen as a never-ending journey. And by that, I don't mean that there are particular religious or spiritual beliefs built in, but just some sense that everything is transformed. Nothing ever stops transforming. Death is one great transformation. But, you know, who knows, there might be more. So we have we have characters that represent that. So not a character from a story from Irish mythology and British mythology is an old hag called the Sheila Nagig. And she is a stone carving that is found on many, many churches and Christian sites to everybody's great astonishment. Nobody really quite understands how this came about. But she is a woman who is sitting down and she has her legs splayed open and her vulva, her genitals are on display to the world. and She is actively holding them open. And the passage into her womb is kind of a, you know, like going into a dark cave. And she's usually presented as an older, quite ugly woman. But she is, on the one hand, you know, from the waist down, she's a symbol of fertility because she again is displaying the passageway to the womb, which is the fount of, of physical creation. And from the top up, she's an old woman. So we have this sense of again, a bit like the kissing the hag stories, both aspects being equally important and perhaps reflecting that cycle of death and rebirth. And I think it's very, very clear from the stories that our ancestors really didn't have a problem with death. It's not that they didn't want to die, but you know that was what was going to happen. So let's make up some good stories about it. Yeah, I just love this particular realm. And you you wrote that as a human being, is to be a guest house in the Rumi tradition, and that death is the most honored guest of all. And it's really interesting how you say that as elders, our job is actually to die, just as we came to live, and always in the service of life. Yeah, I've I've long felt because of you know my own experience that in order to fully live, we have to be able to look death in the eye. We have to come to terms with death. Otherwise, you know, because that's what gives meaning 
to life. Death gives meaning to life in the way that we can't make any sense of light if we don't have a concept of what dark is, and if we don't in some way appreciate and experience both. And while I was writing the book, I had a diagnosis of a fairly aggressive form of lymphoma, which happily seems to have gone away right now. And it really did bring home to me the need not only to look death in the face because it was an, you know, d- distinct possibility at the time, but also the notion of befriending death. And so I started to think of, you know, I look at everything in terms of personifications and archetypal characters. It's just the way I see the world. And I had a, a, a sense or, you know, a, a sense of, a, of death as a character that I called Old Bone Mother of an old woman kind of picking over the bones and somehow bringing them back to life again. And there's a wonderful Siberian story that I found of an old woman who lives in a cave deep in the earth who has brought the bones of a dead hero and she sets fire to them and she sleeps on the ashes of his bones and after three days he is reborn. And so again, this whole idea of older women as in some way propelling that cycle of life and death and rebirth is another really important one. And I think that that really, for me anyway, gives me some sense of that, not just as an inevitable and very unpleasant end to a journey, but actually something that is just a natural part of of the process. You can't have life without death. We have to be able to accept that and welcome it. And I don't mean welcoming it in the sense of wanting to die, but welcoming that next stage in the story in whatever way we feel personally able to do. Mm -hmm. And the inevitability of death can also be a great motivator and inspiration to consider what it is that in our elderhood that we wish to leave behind and to contribute to life. Yeah, that whole sense of legacy is an interesting one, isn't it? And to me, it is very much tied up with this old notion of calling, which post-Jungian psychologist James Hillman wrote about so beautifully in his best-selling book, The Soul's Code. And this comes from, again, from ancient Greek philosophy with the idea that Plato had that each one of us comes into this world with a calling, that we came here to do something, to be something, just simply to represent one unique way of being human in the world. And I always think of it like a flower garden, you know? You can have the big flashy flowers, you can have the sweet smelling flowers, you can have the smaller flowers that are in the undergrowth that provide shelter for creeping creatures. Every flower is different. Every flower has its place in the garden. And without one of those flowers, the garden would be a poorer place. And I think calling for me is very much about that. It's about being human in our own unique way. And to me, that journey through the second half of life towards the inevitable ending is all about putting that gift out there. And in a, in the most simple sense, that I think is our legacy, that at the end of our lives, we can turn around and say, yeah, I was that. You know, that was what I was. It was what it was the only thing I could be. That was who I was at heart in my essence when all of the other stuff had been stripped away. Exactly. And it's it's really interesting how we don't really generally come to understand our calling until much later in life. And this really long, long journey to get there. 
Yeah, it's it's always interesting to me. I you know I I do workshops and younger women are just kind of desperate to find their calling and feel that they failed if they haven't got there by twenty four. And it really you know it really is it it is a terrible cliche to say it, but it really is about the journey and about a, an ongoing iteration of of your calling, an ongoing iteration of who you are in the world and who you will become and what you will offer it in the very sometimes in the very in in the most simple ways, but. We're not taught to see ourselves in that way, are we? You know, that's, again, a problem with the cultural mythology. We're not taught to see ourselves as bearing some gift, as some unique way of being human in the world. We're taught to see ourselves as kind of productivity machines in one way or another. And I think that that is part of the the issue that we are dealing with in the world today, this desperate lack of meaning and it seems to me that elder people who have gone through that and who have come out the other end and who are looking their own death in the face are perhaps the best prepared of all to turn around and help younger people face what is clearly going to be an ever more challenged world. Yes, yes. Well, I could talk with you forever, it seems. <laughs> but it, it's been absolutely lovely talking with you. It's been lovely talking with you as well. I don't often get the chance for this kind of in-depth conversation, so it's a real treat. My guest has been Sharon Blackie. She's an award-winning writer and internationally recognized teacher whose work sits at the interface of psychology, mythology, and ecology, and focuses on the development of the mythic imagination and on the relevance of myth, fairy tales, and folk traditions to the personal, social, and environmental problems that we face today. And she's the author of five books of fiction and nonfiction, including the eco-feminist bestseller, If Women Rose Rooted. And her new book that we've been talking about is Hagitude, Reimagining the Second Half of Life. Sharon, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Tonio, for inviting me. It's been a real pleasure. You're listening to WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. I listen when I'm naked. This is my favorite thing to do, sitting by myself being a one-woman band. The music that I am writing is about the conscious use of the power of words. Although I am singing about myself, it's not, all the songs are not necessarily about how I am, but they're affirmations, things that I like to say that go into my ear and go into my heart. Like the old folks used to say, everything that come out your mouth go into your own ear. That's why I write about the stuff I write about. Um, this song right here is not a song that I've written, but it's a song that I sing to myself when I just need to hear these words. This is by Farrell Sanders and Leon Thomas. was on the earth 
Joy and happiness did reign Cause each man knew his worth In my heart How I yearned for that Spirits returning I cried As time flies The Creator has master plan Peace and happiness for every man the Creator makes but one demand Peace and happiness Through all There was a time There was a light that shined, oh, and rainbows are shadow of love that's so divine, and the glow of God's love will light the, will light the heavens above. But one demand Peace and happiness Through all the
And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. According to plans formulated by the architects of being and appears on the inhabited planets either by direct importation or as a result of the operations of the life carriers of the local universes. These carriers of life are among the most interesting and versatile of the diverse family of universe suns. They are entrusted with designing and carrying creature life to the planetary spheres. And, after planting this life on such new worlds, they remain there for long periods to foster its development. Support your local life carrier. This message has been a public service announcement brought to you by your local universe.